Welcome back to the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning podcast, episode number 72, with sleep medicine physician, sports psychiatrist, and author of the new book that I couldn't put down, Peak Sleep Performance for Athletes, Dr. Shane Creato. My name is Andrea Samadhi, and if you're new here, I'm a former educator who created this podcast to bring the most current neuroscience research, along with high-performing experts like Dr. Creato, who've risen to the top of their field with specific strategies or ideas that you can implement immediately to take your results to the next level. I am so excited to have you here, Dr. Creato. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Andrea. You can call me Shane. Okay. I want to just give a little bit about your background, Shane, because it really does uh, show your dedication to your field. So um, just to mention, Shane is a double board certified sleep medicine doctor and psychiatrist who practices functional sleep medicine, integrative psychiatry, and sports psychiatry, putting all these skills together to uncover underlying factors that sabotage the patients. And then he comprehensively treats them and helps them to achieve their goals. And this shows dedication. And it goes all the way back to the dedication that you did with your academics yourself, Shane. He completed an undergraduate degree in physical therapy, went on to do an MD, and then went on to do a fellowship in sleep medicine at the University of Wisconsin because of the huge overlap between sleep and psychiatric issues. And he believes in optimization, not normalization, and devoted his time to optimizing brain health in professional athletes, executives, and anyone who's interested in peak performance. And that's what we're interested in here on this podcast. So this is just so exciting to have you here today. If you've not yet listened to episode 71 from last week, I did a deep dive into Shane's book and this would help prepare for the interview because I wanted to dive a little bit deeper with Shane in person. So go back and listen to that episode. You'll get an overview of exactly what the book's about. Welcome Shane, thank you for writing back so quickly. I know how busy healthcare professionals are today and I really did not expect you to be able to come on the podcast. So I am so grateful for you to be here today. Thank you, Andrea. I'm excited to be here today. I'm in awe of the work that you do and the people's lives that you touch. So it's an absolute pleasure to be here with you today. Thank you. Thank you so much. So Shane, after reading your book and recording the episode last weekend, I actually saw it was like a dire need for me to get in touch with you for this. It was not just, <laughs> oh, let's have Shane come on and talk about some sleep strategies. It was these are strategies that are going to make or break us, especially during this time. Can you explain what you do with Amen Clinics in Chicago and why would someone come see you over there? Sure. So Amen Clinics uh, was founded by Dr. Daniel Amen, who is uh, probably the most famous psychiatrist in the U.S., maybe the world. He's written over 41 books, many of them bestsellers. And that's because he works with functional psychiatry. He puts what it looks like in terms of brain scans, activity and blood flow, and puts it into clinical context for patients. So rather than just saying, well, you have these symptoms, it means you have this diagnosis, and that doesn't happen in any other branch of medicine, 
we put it into clinical context and neurobiological context. So let me give you an example of that. If someone's diagnosed with major depressive disorder, they need to meet certain criteria, clinical criteria. So loss of interest in pleasurable activities, prolonged periods of sadness, obsessive negative thoughts, um, low self-esteem, guilt, shame, self-doubt, sleep and appetite disruptions. Each of those symptoms has a different brain region implicated, Andrea. So lack of interest, lack of motivation, lack of drive, low energy are correlated with the frontal lobe functioning, which is governed by dopamine. Obsessive negative thoughts are correlated with the anterior cingulate gyrus or your brain's gear shifter. Low self-esteem, guilt, negativity, shame, self-doubt are correlated with the deep limbic system. And sleep and appetite disruptions are mostly correlated with the hypothalamus. So with all these different brain regions implicated, we can't just have an umbrella term like major depressive disorder and then pharma companies are supposed to design a supplement or a medication based on that umbrella term with different neurobiological correlations. It doesn't make much sense, which is why the efficacy rate of the typical SSRI is 30 to 40%, which is similar to placebo effect. It doesn't mean that those meds don't work. I know people say, why are we getting these medications? It's because unfortunately in our medical system, doctors are on a time crunch. They're not trained adequately. And therefore we don't look at all the underlying factors implicated in a manifestation of symptoms that may be called major depressive disorder. So what we do at Amen Clinics is we look at the underlying factors that manifest these symptoms. And we do functional brain imaging or SPECT imaging, which is um, single photon emission computed tomography, simply meaning overactivity, underactivity, blood flow in different brain regions. We know what those brain regions do already, right? From neurobiology and neurophysiology. So the frontal lobes help us with energy, motivation, drive, social connectedness, rational thinking, suppressing our impulses, irrational impulses, help us with concentration, focus, uh, executive functioning, processing speed. So if we see those areas of the brain that are underactive on the brain scan, for example, we know what to look for. We know that the frontal lobes can be affected by high sugars in your diet, um, low vitamin D, low iron, because iron is needed to make dopamine in your frontal lobes. Sleep apnea can cause them to suffer. Insomnia can cause them to suffer. Lack of aerobic exercise. So we can look for those things. And then we can create a tailored plan for each individual's unique brain. So that's what we do. Oh, there's so much in there. So much in, in that answer because I wonder, and, and I feel like I might have asked it in, a, in another question for you, but do you just see regular people that want to optimize or do you see people that are coming to you that have a, let's say, insomnia, depression? Do you have to have an, an issue or could you just come to you and say, I want to improve an athlete maybe that wants to be even better? Yes. So it runs the gamut. I have patients who have been to five or six different psychiatrists and therapists, been on five to 10 different medications, 
found no solution, continue to suffer. And you know what? It might be something as simple as a leaky gut, the microbiome being disrupted, or undiagnosed sleep apnea, because they haven't looked for it. Or it might be a vitamin B deficiency, because vitamin B6, B12 are needed for your red blood cell functioning, for your nervous system functioning. The, the, there's actually degeneration of the spinal cord that can happen with B12 deficiency. People don't know these things. Heavy metal toxicity, lead, arsenic, mercury, well waters, high amounts of arsenic. People don't know that. And so they keep working with different psychiatrists, find no solution, get 15 minute med checks with one medication after the other. And that can actually fuel a sense of defeat and depression because they feel that there's something wrong with them, that nothing's gonna work. They're diagnosed with treatment resistant depression. I've never called it treatment resistant depression. It's usually the physician who's resistant to looking at other solutions, other reasons for the manifestation of their symptoms. So those are the really serious cases. I, most of the time I work with such patients. I also deal with a lot of patients who've been diagnosed with dementia or misdiagnosed with dementia because there's over 40 different contributing factors to dementia. Alzheimer's is just one of them. And then of course I deal with high performers, with athletes and work with CEOs, with people who just wanna optimize every aspect of their lives. And sleep is, is a key anchor, is a key pillar of brain health. And it's modifiable, which is what's so beautiful about it. Can't really change your DNA. Well, we could talk about epigenetics maybe and how the environment influences our DNA. But sleep is something that's modifiable and we can correct it. We can not just normalize it, but optimize it. And the, the proof is in the pudding. Most Americans get less than seven hours of sleep a night. And it may not be enough. It depends on your age, the kind of activity you're engaged in, how much recovery time you need, other factors that may disrupt or fragment your sleep or reduce the quality of your sleep, like medications. So the book was written not just for athletes. Yes, I want everyone to have access to the skills, the sleep skills that I use with my elite athletes to help them perform at the pinnacle of human achievement. These are simple strategies. It really goes back to the basics, to the roots, to just simply regulating our circadian rhythms properly, Andrea. And that's the way we were designed. That's the way we've evolved. We've, our melatonin is suppressed by sunlight. It goes up when the sun goes down. Campfires um, that were lit by ancient human beings tend to have more red and orange light, which doesn't really impact your melatonin negatively, but bright light now does. And so when we understand the basic rhythms of life, every cell in your body has its unique circadian rhythm, every single cell. When we understand the basics, it's very clear in terms of what we need to do. So historically, human sleep has been polymodal or Human beings would get a few hours of sleep early at night, and then they'd be awake for a few hours, then maybe get some sleep in the early morning or late at night, and then maybe get some sleep in the afternoon. And it makes sense because we see the rise of melatonin in, at night and then a dip, and then again a slight rise in the afternoon. So yeah, when people feel sleepy in the afternoon, 
it's their melatonin rising, it's their lunchtime, the brain is fatigued, they need a recharge. And I know sleep hygiene says avoid naps. That's pretty much wrong. You can nap as long as you know how much time you're doing it for, where you're doing it, and what time you're doing it. So those are keys to strategic napping. So when you wrote your book, what would you say would be the key message that you want to get across? Like, I know that in the title, it says peak sleep performance for athletes. Well, and and I'm not a pro athlete, but I always look at pro athletes and anyone I know who's in great shape, I'll ask, what are you eating and how are you training? Because I want to know, I want to be like at the top of my game. So what, what would you say would have been your key message, writing that title and thinking about who you want to pick up and read that book? The book was primarily designed um, to have sports organizations, teams, athletes, coaches, access to this information. Because I was appalled to know from NBA players, NFL players, Olympians, that there's no cogent sleep guidelines or strategies out there. There's just a few sleep coaches, maybe one or two MDs, or maybe some sleep psychologists who work with an athlete or a team occasionally, but there's absolutely no consistency. And that's shocking to me because the way I work with my athletes is, okay, this is your preseason, this is your off season, this is your season. These are your games. This is your schedule. How long do you train? When do you train? What's your chronotype like? Are you a morning owl? Are you, uh, are you a morning bird or a night owl? And then I look at where they're going to be playing, across time zones or within time zones, but travel fatigue can set in even within time zones. What kind of travel? Is it an airplane where the cabin is as dry as the Sahara Desert? How will we maintain the hydration? And then what's the best mode of transportation? What time of day will they, will, they, will they travel? And when they are traveling, what kind of sleep kit do they need to take with them? So this needs to be designed in a very meaningful way for teams and athletes, organizations, every single season. It's not done. So I wanted this book to be a template to establish guidelines across sport, across sports organizations, across teams and leagues. And then I wanted everyone else to have these tools available to create their own life path in terms of sleep. You know, when things get busy, things get stressful, we just stay home and work from home, the first thing to fall off is usually sleep. And sleep needs to be our anchor. We need to not just focus on, oh, let me go to bed now because you can't just shut it on and off, but really be aware of winding down taking your sleep as your mini vacation time and then waking up and giving your brain time to adjust to waking up before you start your day because melatonin levels are still high. If you immediately go to social media or your work emails, as soon as you wake up, your cortisol levels are boosted even more. And then you're going to danger mode, anxiety mode. You're chasing the day. So this book is hopefully the first of a series of books I I wanted to write. And I really want to tailor those books to individual people's needs. I know what people are going through. I've spoken to so many people and first responders, for example, shift workers. Shift work actually causes fragmentations and breaks in your DNA. It causes people to be 
set up for increased risks of heart attacks and strokes. And the WHO has designated shift work as a probable carcinogen or cancer-causing uh, behavior. People don't know these things. It's not simply about being sleepy or being irritated if you lose out on a few hours of sleep. This, this goes down to your very DNA, and that's what I want people to know about, that sleep is your anchor. It can stave off aging. It can prevent obesity. It can reduce inflammation. It can boost your immune system. It can stave off menopause. It can help regulate your testosterone and growth hormone levels and suppress your stress hormone levels and regulates your gut flora as well. It's profound. And it's just what you just said there. I saw a quote when I was reading the book. And you know when you're reading, I don't know if you've ever seen this ability, but when you're reading a book on Kindle and you come across a, a quote, you have the ability to highlight that quote. And you can make a graphic out of it. And oh. so I made this graphic and I started sharing it. And of course, Dr. Amen starts sharing it and it went crazy out there. But I saw something in the book and you mentioned your brain health and sports performance cannot be optimized unless your sleep is optimized. And once this is achieved, your quality of life will skyrocket. When you sleep well, the fabric of your life will change, just like what you said just there. And when this happens, it will have a ripple effect. And this is what we're all about. I'm trying to create, take information that we don't necessarily talk about all the time and go deeper into it on the podcast. And so um, can you just go a little bit deeper about how sleep impacts our overall results in life? Like you, you mentioned, can you just go a little bit deeper into why we should all be doing this and taking a look at this book and having our own plan? Yeah, so it goes way beyond sports performance. You're so right. And Andrea, what I, what I love about this conversation, what you did with the deep dive as well, is that you understood it exactly for what it is. It's not just about sports performance, it's about life peak performance and how it addresses every aspect of our lives, our personal lives, our social lives, and our professional lives. So yes, sleep is one of the pillars of brain health along with exercise and nutrition. And we need to make sure we're getting the right amount of sleep. Most adults and most, most teenagers don't know about this, but a vast majority, 70 million Americans suffer from a sleep problem. And way more than those suffer from sleep deprivation, chronic sleep deprivation. Because each one's brain is different. Some people's brains need six hours, one out of 100 people. Okay, so it's not as common as people might think. Um, some people's brains need nine hours and some people's brains need 10 hours or 11 hours. So kids need way more sleep than adults. It depends on their age as well, but typically a child um, who's in middle school might need 10 or 12 hours of sleep. Uh, teenagers may need between 10 and 12 hours of sleep. And adults typically need seven and a half to nine hours of sleep. I'll tell you later on about how we quantify sleep in terms of hours versus sleep cycles. But if a child is deprived of sleep, their growth hormone levels will be suppressed because deep sleep is where growth hormone levels peak. So basically you're gonna be stunting your growth. Over 80% of kids who are sleep deprived go on to develop obesity. There's a huge overlap between kids who are chronically sleep deprived who manifest mental health conditions later on in life. 
So let's talk about how it correlates with our results, as you asked me about. So there's hardcore evidence, lots of research to show that college students and high school students who are sleep deprived, their GPAs plummet and they're twice as likely in some cases to drop classes and quit. That's a big thing. We know that certain brain regions are affected when you're sleep deprived. For example, if you're sleep deprived, one all-nighter can result in your hippocampus area in the temporal lobes that helps with new learnings. It essentially shuts down. Its functioning drops by 40%. So imagine having a 40% decline in, in learning. How are you going to go through school? That's the difference between getting an A and flunking out. So it does affect your ability to concentrate. It affects your ability to process, retain information, manipulate information. And if you're irritable, frustrated, have a short um, tolerance for doing things, how are you going to attempt a math problem? I hated math. I was terrible at it in high school. And I realized looking back, it was probably because one of the reasons was, besides the fact that I was bad at it, uh, was sleep deprivation. And they've done studies on this. They've, they've looked at certain populations who are really good at math, and they found that their ancestors tended to be rice paddy growers. So it takes a lot of patience. You need the right water levels to grow the rice paddies. Too much, they drown. Too little, they dry out. And so those populations, those students, tend to attempt a math problem for several minutes longer than the average American student. And that was a key in their mathematics success. That's just one of the things. So grades, obesity, growth in children. When it comes to teenagers and their results, there's so many factors implicated in teens' lives. Teens are the most vulnerable population, right? Because they're trying to figure out what their identity is. They've had all these roles, a role as a student, a role as a, as a child, a role as a sibling. They seek external validation, body image, what are they going to do with their lives? Uh, what kind of career path will they choose? So they're trying to find themselves, their, sort, their identity, while also having to fulfill the role as a kid under their parents' roof with no financial independence and a really hard time trying to maintain that external validation with that internal sense of self. And of course, then comes the social media and the screens and the social jet lag. And what I mean by social jet lag is is that sometimes teens have their phones on until super late at night. They work on social media. They might have late night assignments. And then it's going to mess with their sleep schedule. So one night they may go to sleep with their screen on or doing something activating till 2 a.m. They just still get up early to go to school or college. And then the next night they might sleep in at 9 p.m. So essentially what they're doing is each day that they're waking up at a diff different time and going to bed at a different time, they're causing themselves to be in permanent jet lag. And all of us have experienced jet lag. Um, you know how that feels. Irritability. You don't want to do any complicated activities. You don't want to multitask. How are you going to concentrate? How are you going to deal with those things? It's going to be very difficult. So teenagers are very vulnerable. And then it comes to the adult population. When it comes to work performance, we know that your reaction times reduce. We know that being sleep deprived for four hours or six hours is equivalent to two to six alcoholic beverages. So your brain essentially functions, functions drunk. And 
we know that napping strategically can boost your performance. There was a NASA study that showed that people who nap 26 minutes can boost their alertness by 54%, their performance by 34%. And that's tons of studies out there that show that workers are chronically sleep deprived. They're way more likely to not be present at meetings, to doze off, to be less efficient, um, to be more irritated by that evil colleague who always irritates them or that boss that they hate. So they're not gonna function well at meetings. They might do something wrong. They might miss out on certain things. Medical professionals, 36% serious medical errors occur in people, in medical professionals who've um, had sleep deprivation, who've gone 16 hours without sleep. And there was an interesting study which compared medical professionals who had an overnight shift versus 16 hours straight. I know it's ridiculous when, it, when I tell you these numbers, but there was a 300% increase in medical errors that could result in death. So would you like your pilot to be dozing off while, when, when he's in the air, 36,000 feet above land? Would you like your surgeon operating on you, sleep deprived? Mm -hmm. Would you like your medical professional trying to make decisions for you with your life in their hands when they have a 300% risk, increased risk of making mistakes? And we're all human anyway, but it increases the dangerousness of those situations by so much more. So work performance is affected, concentration is affected, team dynamics are affected, memory retention is affected, and of course, workplace injuries. If you're drowsy, if you're engaged in labor, if you slip and fall, or if you have heavy machinery, if you're driving long haul, you're way more likely to have a workplace injury, become disabled, lose your job, lose your livelihood, lose something you may be passionate about. Over 6,400 fatal accidents in this country alone because of drowsy driving. So sleep deprivation, not only does it affect our results, but it kills you. Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting. Before I read your book, I had never thought about sleep for myself or the adult population. You know, being a mom, you, you know about your kids. And I was reading all the books, like how to get your kids to sleep as a baby, as a toddler, going into like, you know, the teenage years, what to expect. And that was the end of the books that I bought. I thought that that's it, that we're all good now. We know how to put the kids to sleep. But I never thought about everything you just said there for such a case for us as adults to be looking at our sleep. And it's, it's surely opened my eyes. Well, you've been proactive about that. I, most people don't even look at, at what to do when it comes to getting kids and how to put them to sleep and teenagers. So you're way ahead of the game there. Well, I'm going to get even better now. <laughs> so let's, let, I'll, I'll tell you how we're doing in a year or so. But um, one of the most powerful statistics that I read in the beginning part of your book, you said that 60% of people with a traumatic brain injury experience long-term difficulties with sleep and that concussions cause sleep problems. And most people I know involved in athletics, myself included, we've all hit our head in some sort of way. I slipped uh, in a triathlon and banged my head coming out of the swimming pool. And um, it, it explained a lot of injuries I had along the way, but I never thought about it with sleep. And 
And then you talk about the fact that sleep optimization is important before the athlete has the concussion to reduce the risk of concussion. Can you just take us through the importance of sleep on the parts of the brain? Like why would um, be looking after your sleep protect your, your brain from danger or injury? Yeah, yeah. Um, that's very true. People don't really think about tying concussions and sleep issues. But the fact is, most people who've had a concussion end up with sleep problems. It makes a lot of sense, right? When you think about the brain and how it regulates the sleep and wakeful cycles, and then it gets jarred or hit. But what people don't realize is that even a mild head injury can really damage your brain. Even if you're not officially diagnosed with a concussion, you don't have to lose consciousness to have a concussion. You don't even have to have any symptoms to have your brain injured in some way. And then little injuries along the way add up over time. So the brain is as soft as butter and it's in a hard bony skull. Anything that jars it, even whiplash, can cause your brain to be injured and it all accumulates over time. What's interesting, Andrea, is that the same regions of the brain that are most damaged in head injuries are also damaged in sleep deprivation mm -hmm. and also damaged in alcohol use. The frontal lobes, the temporal lobes, the parietal lobes at the top of the brain. So concussions, first of all, can be devastating to the brain in, in a, many different ways. But speaking to sleep, if you are sleep deprived and you're an athlete, for example, your brain is already running on fumes, basically. And your reaction times will, re will be reduced if you are chronically sleep deprived. And I mean that depends on how much sleep each person needs. So if you're getting seven hours at night and you think you're great, but your brain needs nine hours of sleep a night, you're still sleep deprived. So you'll have more inflammation. You're almost twice at risk of getting injured compared to someone who's getting enough sleep. More inflammation, less protective hormones, more stress hormones, lower pain tolerance. So you, if you perceive pain to be five out of 10, if 10 is the worst pain that you could have, with sleep deprivation, you'll perceive it to be eight or nine out of 10. Mm -hmm. All these factors are already there in someone who's chronically sleep deprived. And then their reaction times are reduced. They don't see the guy coming at them out of the corner of their eye. Boom, they're hit. So their brain is more vulnerable, already more fragile. And then, so their symptoms will be more severe. Now, concussion has happened. What are the effects? Over 50% of people experience insomnia after a concussion, even a mild traumatic injury, brain injury. They might need more sleep because the brain needs time to heal and recover. Their circadian rhythms can be disrupted. There's acquired ADD, so their mind may be racing. If it's a traumatic situation that's resulted in a concussion, they might have an anxiety overlay or a PTSD overlay that'll disrupt their sleep rhythms further. They're also more likely to have sleep apnea, both central and obstructive sleep apnea. They're more likely to have rhythm disturbances, restless leg syndrome, periodic limb movements of their, of their limbs while they're asleep or trying to fall asleep. Pain, neck problems associated with head injuries. So the pain factor and how sleep deprivation worsens your sensation of pain. And of course, the pituitary can be disrupted. 
in head injuries. So the pituitary gland produces necessary hormones to regulate your life. That can also contribute to sleep deprivation. All these things devastate people's sleep after a concussion. But your brain needs even more sleep after a concussion to heal, recover, and get back to play. I spoke to the medical director of the NCAA and he said, the number one factor when it comes to recovering from a concussion is adequate optimal sleep. That was even before I wrote the book. So this is going to be, I think it should be part of the protocol for anyone who's had a concussion. What is our sleep protocol gonna look like? Is your sleep off and how do we correct it naturally? Synchronizing those rhythms once again, rather than giving you a medication like clonazepam or Valium or Ambien, which have the potential to worsen sleep apnea in many cases. Lots to think about with that one, especially with some of the people that I know have recently had a sports injury. Um, I know this guy that we hike with and he fell while hiking and broke his wrist. And then he went back to the mountain and he hiked again and he fell again. And this time he had to go get plastic surgery to reconstruct his whole arm. And I was like, well, what happened to you? Your wrist was just like a couple scratches a couple days ago. And now he's like got this big cast on. And, and it was probably, I think, that he wasn't ready to come back. He needed more rest, but he wanted to push through and he re-injured himself. And I'm just thinking about, you wrote somewhere else that it was about your footing, your footwork, something in there, your reaction yes. times. So I just try to apply this thinking that that person probably needed more rest and, and then they re-injured themselves and now they're just way worse. Yeah, that's terrifying. It, it is way worse. And spatial awareness, uh, balance. So the cerebellum, the back part of the brain, which can be injured if your brain is rocked back and forth, um, governs our balance, our, our joint position sense and our coordination. So that can be injured and in people have head injuries and the parietal lobes, which help you with spatial awareness, depth perception, um, right-left discrimination, map reading, um, direction sense. And so if your spatial awareness is off and your cerebellum is not working properly, and if you've had a head injury, you might be at risk of convergence insufficiency. So you cannot really focus on an object as it comes closer to you. Or you might have Erlen syndrome because of the head injury, which is a visual processing issue that prevents you from understanding depth properly, eye fatigue, eye sensitivity. All those things can set you up for failure, can set you up for worse injuries like you described. Oh, it's powerful. So once you've, you've got a, a head injury, you've got to just stop and take it seriously because there's no messing around with this. You've got to take it seriously. You've got to help your brain heal. And that's going to include sleep, nutrition, brain optimizing supplements, the right kinds of exercise, and get back into play only when those symptoms have resolved. Otherwise, you're going to compound the injury. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. When I was watching you, uh, it was this week on YouTube Live, and Tana Amon was talking about nutritional supplements. And, and it, it's an interesting topic because I didn't want to even cover it in the deep dive because I wouldn't even know what to say about what supplements to take. Um, so how do you know, like Tana was saying, she has a sleepy brain. 
I think I know what type of brain I have, but how do you know sleepy brain, busy brain? Do you have to get a spec scan to know? How would we know what supplements to take so we don't just go randomly buying? Like I bought some supplements um, that I've been trying out that I think are good, but I don't want to do the wrong thing and just start taking stuff randomly. Right, I agree. A lot of people make that mistake. They take random stuff they find at the local pharmacy and they don't know what doses to take. They don't know how to take it. They don't know if they're actually getting what the label says they're getting because of the FDA oversight. And so a lot of people are misdiagnosing, mismanaging, mistreating, and with devastating consequences. Then they think something doesn't work or they have really bad side effects. So that's a very good point you bring up. And we can determine on SPECT imaging what the predominant brain type looks like based on activity levels and their emotional circuits. So the basal ganglia, your stress responders, if they're on fire, you're more likely to have anxiety, stress, worry. We know that GABA supplements can help calm down the basal ganglia. We know that if your interior cingulate gyrus, your brain's gear shifter is overactive, you might be the kind of person that gets stuck in certain thought cycles, especially around bedtime, because we have busy lives and that's pretty much the only time we have to ourselves. So then 5-HTP might be a good one for people who have uh, the depressive brain or obsessive kinds of thoughts. So yeah, spectrum imaging is very helpful like that, but I wanna make a point pretty clear here is that I'm not treating the scans when I do scans on patients, I'm treating the human being. And we always need to put the scans in the clinical context. We combine the information that the patient gives us, neuropsych testing, as well as imaging, to come up with the best strategy for them. So if there's a kind of person who has depression where their frontal lobes are not working properly, then an option that I wouldn't like is an SSRI because like Zoloft, because it might boost your serotonin, but it might actually shut down your frontal lobes some more. So I'd, I'd wanna go with something like Wellbutrin, which can boost dopamine. I'd go with something like Venlafaxine, which can also boost adrenaline as well as serotonin. When it comes to the supplements, to answer that question, you can do SPECT imaging to look at overactivity and, and underactivity. But if your doctor, if your sleep doctor or psychiatrist knows the right questions to ask and puts it into neurobiological context, then we can, with a reasonable degree of certainty, know what kind of predominant brain type you have. And my favorite supplements tend to be very low dose melatonin and melatonin is not supposed to knock your brain out it's not supposed to be taken in doses of more than three milligrams unless you have another sleep disorder where you're acting out your dreams that's one condition i say you can have really high doses of melatonin but otherwise you need very low doses around 90 minutes before your desired bedtime and dim the lights around the house because that's gonna help your natural melatonin levels rise. It's only supposed to push your brain gently towards sleepiness. 5-HTP is a great choice if you want to help your brain produce more serotonin, the calming neurotransmitter, and the, the right doses again. So 150 milligrams, and you can gradually increase all the way up to 3,000 milligrams. But if you have bipolar disorder or mood instability, it can worsen that. 
GABA, as I mentioned earlier, can help calm the emotional circuits down. You can take anywhere from 300 milligrams all the way up to 3,000 milligrams. And there's big ranges there, and that's because each one has a different brain, different brain sensitivities, and it just depends on what works best for the particular individual. I like L-theanine. It can help calm the busy brain down nicely. Vitamin B6 helps your brain produce serotonin too. Passion flower is another good one. Lemon balm extract. Valerian root. People hate the smell, but it can be useful, especially for middle-aged women. Magnesium is really important. And I prefer magnesium glycinate because it's best absorbed. Magnesium hydroxide may lead to diarrhea. So magnesium glycinate is generally the best absorbed. Chamomile tea as well can be very helpful. And how much? Well, 220 to 1600 milligrams. So one to four cups. Again, it depends on what your brain likes. Don't do green tea because it has caffeine. It can activate your brain. So in looking at the best sleep supplements we had and thinking about how to package them in to the right kind of package to help most people we could, we determined that most people have anxious brains, busy brains, worry at night, and kind of go into the social jet lag mode where they don't have their rhythms regulated. So I worked with Dr. Daniel Amen to create a sleep supplement for him called Put Me to Sleep. Um, and it's available on BrainMD. And we've just loved it. Um, it's done so well for so many people because it has very low dose melatonin. It has vitamin B6 in way higher than normal daily values because most people are lacking in it. It has magnesium, which helps in over 300 reactions in your body. And then the L-theanine, GABA, and the 5-HTP. And the right doses and the right combination taken maybe 60 minutes before your desired bedtime. So you have a nice wind down routine after you take the tablet. It's chewable. It's really helped people regulate their sleep cycles better. And they wake up refreshed rather than drowsy or have the hangover effect with clonopin and Valium and Ambien and all those medications that are really harsh and are not designed to be used for the long term. I love it. I'm going to get it because I'm already listening to what he's recommending. I also got saffron, but if you guys have something that's packaged better, so I will get it and I'll put the link in the show notes and, Sounds and I'll good. definitely let you know what happens. Um, so with the deep dive that I just did last week, I listed just three strategies. What strategies do you think we should all implement? I chose to adopt the mindset of an elite athlete so that we can, you know, take our bodies seriously like they do. I liked the tip that you said about empowering change with fear. So understanding what's happening at the brain level, like how you scared the teenager into, um, you know, putting his phone away. And then your sleep routine, picking a couple of different strategies that you're going to do. What else could you add to this list? I would say that consistency is key because a lot of people go into social jet lag. They want to catch up on the weekends, but that's not typically the way it works. So I would say have a fixed wake up time most days of the week. 
we've also got to be reasonable here. I have my athletes who are traveling and they do endorsements and they have late games and they want to party. And <laughs> we need to be realistic, right? Uh, imagine me telling a college student, no, you to go to bed at 10 p.m. every night, all, all nights of the week and wake up at 6 a.m. No, they wouldn't hear that or they'd probably lie to me. So I'd say have a fixed wake up time most days of the week. And if you have to sleep late or go out, just remember that you can nap strategically. So fixed wake up time most days of the week and strategic napping. What I mean by strategic napping, I mean that if you, for example, the kind of person who says, you know what? I know you said that I'm feeling sleepy during the day and I'm only getting seven hours of sleep a night, but I really can't get any more. I'll just be lying there awake. Then that's fine. But if you can take a 25 minute nap at a fixed time every day, it's going to boost your performance, your energy levels, your concentration, your stress tolerance. And so when I say strategic, I mean a 25 minute nap at either around 1 PM or around 4 PM. Those are typically, for the average person, the opportunities or the little sleep windows we have. Most people wake up between 6 and 8 a.m. and then their brain gets tired during the day. And there's a slight melatonin bump around 1 p.m. That's why we feel sleepy around mealtime. And then there's another little bump uh, where, where you could actually get a window of sleep around 4 p.m. We all know this from coming back from work around 4 p.m. and feeling really sleepy. So if you are napping, it needs to be at a fixed time every day for a fixed duration. If you want to nap longer than 25 minutes, 45 minutes or an hour, you might wake up in a deeper stage of sleep. So you might feel more groggy and less rested than with 25 minutes. So remember that if you are getting a lot more sleep in terms of a nap, you're going to feel groggier when you wake up and you're also going to put yourself at risk for sabotaging your nighttime sleep. However, some people do well with one and a half hours of sleep, which is basically one full sleep cycle. So one nap around 1 p.m., one and a half hours. And if they're going to sleep at 10 or 11 p.m., it generally doesn't sabotage their sleep. So again, consistency is always key. So when I think about the napping, I think about people in the corporate world, like how would you do a nap in the middle of the day like that? Could it only be the weekends? Like I could see it working Saturday, Sunday, but does it have to be an everyday type thing? Everyday type thing is, is always the best. Now in our culture in America, we say, well, this person is sleepy, so they must be lazy. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of companies actually waking up to, to this phenomenon. Google's campus has energy pods. Cisco and Procter and & Gamble use sleep pods. The Huffington Post uses sleep pods and nap rooms. Um, Nike's Oregon campus has quiet rooms. Um, British Airways also encourages sleep. Ben & Jerry's has quiet rooms and encourages employee naps. And the New York Times offers privacy rooms for naps and relaxation. Zappos, the lighter manufacturer, also has dark room for workers. Hearst, Newsweek, Time Warner, all these big companies, Pizza Hut's offices allow napping as well. So all these corporate offices are now waking up to the fact that if your employees are chronically sleep deprived and if they strategically nap, even if it's 
25 minutes out of their one hour lunch break, their productivity will increase dramatically. Their risk of workplace injury will reduce. They'll get way more done in the afternoon than they would without a nap. And so one of my goals, Andrea, is to provide this hard evidence to, to organizations, to companies, to say, listen, this is what can happen with your employees. Companies are worried about their bottom line most of the time, which is understandable. But if we tie it to employees' health and say, these are the overall health outcomes for employees, this is the overall work uh, productivity outcomes, this is how it's going to boost your bottom line, they'll be way more engaged. So that's something that I'm working on in changing the understanding, changing the culture, changing how we look upon naps. And people who nap, there's a 37% decrease in, in heart attacks and early death. Oh, didn't Einstein used to nap? Do you know that? Yes, yes, he did. So did Winston Churchill. No, oh, I think I heard those too. And Leonardo da Vinci. Wow. Well, you're building a case and it's a strong case. And so when, when I was um, looking at Eamon's clinics courses, because I've taken his Thrive by 25 and I loved it. I love that's Eamon. A good one. Um, that's where I started to learn really how my brain works and how other people's brain works and how I interact with other people. So then I saw that you have this course, Overcoming Insomnia. And um, could you just give an overview of this course? Would it have to be somebody that has insomnia or could it be someone like me that wants to learn more and improve their sleep? What, what would we learn from this course that you have there? So the course is geared toward people who have sleep problems, um, insomnia primarily, but it's basically telling you what you're doing right and also what you're doing wrong. So if someone says, wait, wait a minute, I need to get a better sense of where my sleep is at, then that would be a great course for them. Um, it is founded on the principles of cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, which is the gold standard for insomnia. Not Ambien, not Lunesta, none of those medications. Cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia is the gold standard treatment for insomnia. Most people have heard of cognitive behavioral therapy, but not cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, where we use evidence-based principles to synchronize your sleep and your wake rhythms. So there's 21 videos in that video series, and you sign up for it, it's lifetime membership. I think they, they charge, uh, $149 or something, it's on discount right now, which is an amazing value because if you have to go to a cognitive behavioral therapist for insomnia, each session is over 300 bucks. So this entire package is available for a really good price. And what I do is in the first video, I introduce the video series to everybody. In the second one, I give them the basics about sleep and the regulation with the circadian rhythms, the melatonin, the sleep need or the sleep drives. Then I scare people in the third video. I tell people about the dangers of sleep disruption, how it impacts your health, work performance. And then I overview, go over an overview of insomnia in the fourth video. So this is what insomnia means to us, how we think about it. And so that helps inform the decisions and what we do. People need to understand how we think about insomnia, if they have to engage in the recommendations I give them. 
In the fifth video, I go through sleep disorders and how they impact your sleep, things like restless leg syndrome, circadian rhythm disorders, acting out your dreams, sleep talking, sleep walking, sleep apnea. And then in the sixth video, I have a complete assessment. So people can download assessments and sleep logs, sleep diaries, and kind of fill out where their sleep is falling off. It also has um, basic screening for depression, anxiety, risk factors for sleep apnea. And so they can basically figure out where their sleep is falling off and also what they're doing right. In the seventh video, I discuss how to get motivated because it's very difficult to change habits. There's aspects of neuro-linguistic programming and uh, motivational interviewing in the mix as well. In the eighth video, I spell out the rationale for CBT for insomnia. In the ninth, I talk about some basic sleep hygiene practices, which is different from, well, some overlap, but different from, oh, here's some sleep hygiene for you. What is relevant to you as an individual? In the 10th video, I focus on negative thoughts, breaking the cycle, becoming aware of them to help you with sleep. In the 11th, I talk about arousal and activation of the brain, how we can calm the busy brain down with progressive relaxation, visualization, neurofeedback, treating the underlying cause. So I touch on PTSD, generalized anxiety disorder, um, pets, partners, snoring. And of course, if you have a serious underlying mental health issue, you need that to be treated concurrently with, with sleep. That gives you the best chance really of, of recovery. So it, it makes sense. Some people want to sleep with their pets and the pet is super jumpy and, and very demanding and needy. Some partners can be like that too. And then it's going to cause your sleep to be disrupted. Uh, in the 12th video, we talk about stimulus control. What are the things that we're pairing with the bed, the bedroom that can be sleep sabotaging? TV, activating activities closer to bedtime. What do we do about that? What are viable strategies to do to, to replace those unhealthy behaviors? In the 13th video, I talk about sleep restriction or limiting the amount of time you, st you stay in bed. For example, if you're getting six hours of sleep a night, but you're trying to sleep for nine hours, it's one of the worst things you can do because then you're pairing the bed with wakeful worry, with trying to sleep, with negative worries about the next day. So trying is a surefire way to fail when it comes to sleep. That's a bit challenging for my elite athletes and high performers because they want to make changes. They have always been motivated and driven. But if you try harder to sleep, it's gonna, you're going to fail. So I talk about paradoxical intent like Viktor Frankl did in the book Man's Search for Meaning. If you drop the, the effort, the anxiety associated with the effort and the expectation and the outcomes also goes. So I work with people on being process oriented rather than outcome oriented. And then in the 14th, 14th video, I focus on targeted treatment implementation. These things you need to do. In the 15th, specific considerations. What are some sleep strategies for the depressed brain, for people in pain, for people with PTSD or alcohol use, people with sleep medications who want to get off them? And then I go on to talk about how do we put it all together and then maintain your gains in subsequent videos. And because people have this lifetime membership, they can just, you know, if, if your sleep is great and falls off in a couple of months, you can redo the assessment, go back to whatever video you want and then figure out where it's fallen off and then implement those unique strategies to correct it once again.
Oh, I, I do love the, the Amman University for that reason. You can watch the course and then who knows what's going to come up in a year. You can go back and it's still there. You don't know, maybe you're going to do, you're going to need something. And I really like what you said. There was, it was comprehensive. There's so much to, to learn. I think that this course could be for everyone, just understanding um, ways to improve our sleep for everybody. It's almost like a partner for your book. Like here's the book and, and here's like more for improving our sleep. Definitely. And I'm the kind of person who likes a physical book. I like to underline, make notes and whatever works for people. I think the, the book has simple strategies laid out in a systematic way from the time you wake up to the time you go to bed and everything in between. So you kind of have an idea of the structure as well as supplements and other things. And and the video series is for more people who are more visual, more, more want access to listening to, to something there. Although I don't know who'd want to listen to my voice all over again and repeat, honestly. But whatever floats, whoever's boat, it's fine with me. Well, absolutely. Right now, I think people just need this information. And when we have somebody that's done the research at the level that you have, like there were so many case studies in your book all the athletes, all the coaches, all the organizations. And you talked about earlier that you've been doing this internationally. So you know how it's working really well in Manchester. You, you mentioned that versus like, that's why you're so focused on the fact that we are not doing it well over here, right? Yes, so I'm, I'm with the board for the International Society for Sports Psychiatry. And I also work with the PGA Tour Europe. So that's the golf organization. And we've seen that in, in certain teams in Europe, they've really focused on sleep in a big way. Um, they make it one of the cornerstones of their training for their athletes. I've spoken to organizations in the UK, triathlete organizations as well, and explain these things. And, and they're interested, they're motivated. Team Sky, the British cycling team, um, had unique sleep kits designed for every single one of their riders. And when they'd go uh, for the Tour de France and other major tournaments, they wouldn't sleep in the hotel beds. They would sleep on their sleep kits because that provided them consistency, that provided them the anchor. And Cristiano Ronaldo has 90-minute sleep cycles. That's the way he sleeps. So five naps, five naps, 90-minute naps in 24 periods. And it makes sense because if you're traveling frequently across time zones, if you're having, getting your sleep in chunks, it's much easier to shift and be at your peak when you wake up. It's not for everyone, certainly. But when I look at what people are doing over there and what people are not doing in this country and the lack of consistency there, it appalls me. On the other hand, I also understand it. If people are not aware of what sleep can do in terms of boosting your performance, boosting your life expectancy, lowering your risk of injuries, lowering inflammation, quicker recovery from concussions, quicker recovery and rehab from injuries. You're going to break records. You're going to have longer playing careers. Uh, the sports organizations will earn more money. Fans will be thrilled because you're breaking records all the time. Everyone wins with optimized sleep. And apart from the lack of education and awareness that people have in sports and sleep, the other important component is that fragmentation occurs because there's so many different specialists. There, there's been a saying, a specialist is someone who knows everything about one thing and nothing about anything else. So there are sleep coaches who do 
very good with the cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia piece, some sleep hygiene work. There's psychiatrists who deal with the mental health stuff and medications. There's sports psychologists who deal with the mental resilience part of it. There's sleep doctors who deal with sleep apnea, but really don't care too much about insomnia. That's why it's all fragmented. What I do for my patients is I put it all together. I'm a rehab specialist. I'm a medical doctor, a psychiatrist, a sports psychiatrist, and a sleep doc. So I know the overlap of medical issues on sleep, sleep medications on health and performance, psychiatric medications on performance, and how they influence each other to create an understanding so we don't let anything drop, get a complete picture, and then boost their brain health, their mental health, their sleep, and their performance. So much to think about. And I have one final question. And you've touched on it, but I have to ask it again because um, it's a question that you get asked in probably every interview. Is the magic number really seven to nine hours? Like you said seven to nine, and then a couple of minutes ago, you said seven and a half. And I thought, oh no, it's now it's seven and a half. But um, I heard uh, Dr. Sachin Panda, he's a circadian rhythm uh, sleep expert. He was on Dave Asprey's Bulletproof Radio, and he kind of gave me some relief because I'm half an hour less than the seven. So I've been thinking, well, is there someone else out there that's going to say it's okay? Because you always want to prove that what you're doing is okay. You don't want to change your habits and stuff. So um, he talked about the fact that it was okay as long as you're resting in bed. But do you have to be asleep, in your opinion, for seven to nine hours? Or could you wake up, let's just say, at six hours and meditate for an hour? Is that okay? What do you think? Or is it seven to nine with your eyes closed asleep? Okay, so there's a difference between resting and sleeping. And meditation is a form of rest. So some people who have really bad insomnia, who cannot get enough sleep at night no matter what they do, and they've dealt with their anxiety, they've dealt with all the underlying factors. I have my patients who can't fall asleep for maybe 20 minutes or so on average they're not going to look at their clocks because that's going to activate their brain i have them meditate or rest or read a boring book outside of bed i have them create a nice cubby a nice safe space nice blankie bean bag whatever that's their safe space if they do wake up in the middle of the night and do something calming and relaxing so if you're resting not engaging in any meaningful activity. Not just worry, but any meaningful activity. Some people say, oh, I'm wide awake now at three in the morning. Let me get this chore done. Bad idea, because you're going to give your brain a reason to wake up and do something. One hour of rest, roughly speaking, gives you enough, as much recovery as 20 minutes of sleep. So if you're absolutely unable to fall asleep during the course of the night, resting out of bed in a comfortable place may be fine with me. The exception is, is people who have visual impairments, the elderly, people who have balance problems, difficulty moving around a lot. I don't want them to get out of bed and break a hip or have a concussion if they fall. So in that population, I advise them not to get out of bed, but read a boring book or do something relaxing in bed. Speaking of how much sleep each person's brain needs, 
I kind of explained that it's different for each person's brain. But let me, let me tell it to you in this way. Um, what, if I, what if we don't care about the hours of sleep you get, but in fact, look at it in terms of sleep cycles. Let's talk about 90-minute sleep cycles. That's typically one sleep cycle is 90 minutes. Some people's brains do great with five sleep cycles of 90 minutes every night, which is seven and a half hours. Some people's brains do great with six sleep cycles a night or nine hours. Some people rarely do great with four sleep cycles a night, six hours of sleep. If we think about it in terms of sleep cycles, it's going to change your entire approach to it and it's going to reduce your anxiety to a great degree. Let me explain how that happens. It goes back to the college students and the athletes who like to party a lot. If your brain, you figured out, needs five sleep cycles every night, seven and a half hours every night, so each week your brain needs 35 sleep cycles of 90 minutes each. So if you lose out on a sleep cycle for a particular night, like say Friday night, you lose out on one and a half hours of sleep. The next day, Saturday, maybe around 1 p.m., rather than staying in bed later, which wouldn't disrupt your sleep, keep your wake-up time the same. But when you're feeling sleepy around 1 p.m., get the 90-minute sleep cycle in. And that's going to help you catch up on the lost sleep for that particular night. And it's not going to affect your ability to fall asleep at night. It's going to relieve a lot of anxiety when it comes to this chronic sleep deprivation thing that people experience. If you count it in terms of sleep cycles, keep your wake-up time the same and know what's right for you in the absence of underlying issues like sleep apnea or restless leg syndrome or anxiety or PTSD or medications that mess with your sleep cycles, seven and a half hours or five sleep cycles a night on average, 35 cycles in a week may be, may be great for some people and some people may need six cycles of sleep per night. So if we think about it in terms of 90 minute sleep cycles, you can navigate how you live your life while also enjoying certain things like a drink late at night with friends. Absolutely. And when you're saying like some people do well, how do you gauge that? Would I look at myself and say, well, I'm not tired. Like when I wake up, I'm ready to go. I'm energetic or, or is that I'm doing well with versus I'm not doing well. And I kind of could close my eyes and sleep. I could go back to sleep. I feel sleepy. Is that how I would gauge if I'm doing well or not doing well? Yes. So there's a difference between sleepiness and fatigue. If you've run a marathon or gone up the mountain this morning and you're feeling tired, that's legitimate. That's fatigue. You're not dozing off. But if you feel like you could doze off in certain situations, you might be really sleepy. So I have people, what I do with my patients is, first of all, help them figure out how much sleep their brain actually needs. Uh, on my YouTube channel, Peak Sleep Performance, I have a little video called social disconnection and sleep reconnection, which explains how to figure out how much sleep your brain needs. 
So if you have a sleep diary and you fill it out in the morning, keeping your wake-up time fixed, you'll kind of know with your fixed anchor of your wake-up time what time at night your brain feels sleepy. When you're feeling sleepy, not tired, that's when you go to bed. Of course, having a nice wind-down calming routine an hour before your desired bedtime. If you're waking up fatigued or tired or sleepy or irritable, you've probably had less than ideal sleep or poor quality sleep. You might want to go to bed a little earlier at night, keeping your wake-up time fixed, some bright light in the morning, um, jumping jacks, deep breathing exercises. That's one thing. If you wake up tired or sleepy, you might be sleep deprived or might have a qualitative sleep issue like sleep apnea. If you wake up recharged, energized, ready to go, but you feel really sleepy during the day, at any point during the day, maybe your brain needs a little bit of recharge where that strategic 25 minute nap kicks in at a fixed time every day. And that's enough to, to sustain you till the end of the day, that's great. But if it's not, if you're feeling really sleepy during the day, then you're probably getting really bad quality of sleep or less total sleep than your brain needs. And how do we quantify the sleepiness? Well, apart from sleep diaries that quantify how much sleep you're getting at night and the timings, there's also something called the Stanford Sleepiness Scale. You can Google it, download it, and it's basically you can fill it out at maybe 9 a.m., 12 p.m., 3 p.m., 6 p.m., 9 p.m., every three or four hours, just, just circle it. It takes less than five seconds. Circle the degree of sleepiness you have. And if you're excessively sleepy at any point during the day, you're probably sleep deprived chronically or you have a qualitative sleep issue that's fragmenting your sleep or disrupting your natural sleep cycles. Got it. This is so powerful, Shane. Do you have any final thoughts for us to take away? Anything that you think we might have missed that you don't want anybody? You've, I know you've been so thorough. We've talked about your book. We've talked about your online course. You've given us some strategies. Is there any other thoughts for us here? Yes. I don't want people to be scared about the devastating impact that sleep can have on their lives. But if fear is going to motivate you to make sleep a priority, by all means, worry away, but not around bedtime. And the other thing I'd say is, look at sleep as your vacation time. Be excited about it. Be curious about it. Dive into this hidden potential. It's like dusting off a Picasso in your grandma's attic. The unlimited potential for sleep to improve the quality of your life. Extend your lifespan. Reduce your risk of cancer, diabetes, heart attacks, strokes, inflammation, dementia. The vast potential that sleep has is within you. You don't need fancy technology or to pay people thousands of dollars to, to have a moment of inspiration. You can act on it today. You can start working on your sleep now as your anchor. If your waking hours are important to you and what you do during your waking hours is important to you, whether it's being a good wife or mother to your kids, whether it's being a good employee or business owner, it's being a good member of community, your local church, whatever it is, know that you can only do that with optimal sleep. 
so powerful, Shane. I want to thank you so much for carving out the time to be here today. I know you have patients in between, so I am so grateful for how deep you went with your strategies for your peak sleep performance for athletes and your online course, Overcoming Insomnia. I think it's a crucial time for us to all be proactive with our health and sleep is something that we can change. You've given me tons of ideas for improving our sleep over here. And I hope that people that listen to this, um, if they want to dive deeper, to definitely get the book, look into the online course and follow your work is the best way to follow you at YouTube. It's Peak Sleep Performance. Um, yes, it's just definitely. Peak Sleep Performance, but I'm more active on the Instagram account, Peak Sleep Performance, and my website. So it's shanecriado.com. That's where people can reach out to me, contact me, um, whether it comes to individual consults, whether it comes to me working on sleep retreats and sleep workshops for companies, organizations, teams. I do all of that on Zoom now, which is pretty convenient. You can do it internationally. So those are the best ways to reach me shanecriado.com or peak sleep performance on Instagram. Thank you so much for everything, Shane. You have a wonderful rest of your day. You as well, Andrea. Thank you for this time. If you're enjoying the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning podcast, please don't forget to subscribe so you'll stay up to date with our new episodes. While you're there, please feel free to give us a review or a five-star rating as it helps others find us. For more information on our programs, books, and tools for schools and the workplace, visit us at www.achieveit360.com.